Hey, everybody, this is Brian Zond. Welcome to my sermon podcast. Now, before we get into the sermon, though, I want to tell you that I have a live in-person prayer school coming up Friday night, Saturday morning, November 3rd and 4th. So if you can be with us, we would love to have you for prayer school in the upper room right here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri, Friday night, Saturday morning, November 3rd and 4th. And then if you want, you can stay around for Sunday. That's our anniversary Sunday. We're celebrating 42 years here at Word of Life. So to register, it's it's registration for a donation of any amount. Go to wolc.com slash prayer school for the in-person prayer school November 3rd and 4th. Well, today our sermon is entitled, A Feast for All. And we are less than six weeks away from celebrating our own Thanksgiving feast here in our country. So begin to make your plans. It'll be a time, of course, when everyone, many of us at least, get together with friends and family to celebrate a shared meal and to bring our Thanksgiving, our gratitude for all the blessings in life. For some of us, we may not have family to gather with or even friends. Well, the good news is, as Pastor Derek just shared with us, that the church is a family. It's the family of God. And so one of the traditions we have here is for every year we host a Thanksgiving meal, and we are hosting a Thanksgiving meal this year, the Wednesday night before Thanksgiving. So you can mark your calendars, not just for those who may not have a place, but for all of you available. Let's create a family meal for those in our church and celebrate uh, the gratitude for all of life's blessings together that Wednesday before Thanksgiving. But I, I do want to say that there was a time in our culture where we gathered for a shared meal more often in families than we do now. How many of you can attest to that? That the shared meal was kind of the center of the family unit, the dinner table. And that time has somewhat faded, I think, in our culture. Uh, Most of all was the Sunday lunch meal, right? How many of you grew up in a family where Sunday lunch was a big deal? That's when you wouldn't maybe just meet with your immediate family, but your extended family would get together. Uncles and aunts and maybe cousins would meet for a family Sunday dinner. And uh, I want to say that If you don't have a family that meets on Sunday, the good news is we meet as the family of God each Sunday right here at this table, and I think that we can embrace some significance there, that this, may this table be the center of this family, and the meal that we share is the very life of Jesus given for us. It's beautiful, isn't it? In fact, this meal is a kind of Thanksgiving meal for us each week. Another name for communion is Eucharist, and it's a word that's derived from the Greek word meaning Thanksgiving. So each and every week as we gather at this table, as we will do at the end of our time together this morning, it's a Thanksgiving meal with the family of God. It's a beautiful meal. In fact, the table, the the shared meal was also a staple at the time of Jesus and the culture that Jesus lived in, the first century Jewish Roman culture. The shared meal was a big deal. And uh, there was heavy influence on all cultures within the Roman Empire. Um, The Roman Empire dominated much of the Western world at that time. And as they dominated a culture, came in and took over a nation, they would enact some of their traditions within that culture in order to uphold the Roman social order, 
thoughts and ideals. It was kind of a brilliant idea. And in fact, the Roman banquet was one of the things that was pervasive among the Roman Empire in every culture. The, this idea of banqueting, though, was not so foreign for the Jewish people. In fact, feasting together was a part of their regular practice because of all of the feast meals in the holy calendar for the people of Israel. You think maybe most predominantly of the Passover feast, right, that was celebrated every year. I also want to point out that there was in the prophet Isaiah, a hopeful vision for salvation and the coming kingdom of God, which Isaiah painted in this vivid picture of a feast. In fact, a feast for all. Isaiah 25, verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of morrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Can I get an amen? amen. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God, we have waited for him, that he might save us. This is the Lord, we have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Yes, Isaiah paints a picture of the feast of salvation, and it is a feast for all people. This is beautiful. And this picture of a feast for all as the, the saving work of God in the world, the coming kingdom of God to the world for all peoples is a picture that I want us to hold in our mind this morning. In fact, Jesus enacted this coming kingdom by his own table practices. We read about Jesus sharing meals all throughout the gospels. In fact, the people that Jesus ate with was an enacting of the coming kingdom of God. The events that happened while Jesus joined at the dinner table was an enactment of the coming kingdom of God, the salvation of God here and now, and also through the teachings, mostly through parables that were centered in the feast, in the banqueting stories, as a way to reveal to us the essence of this coming kingdom. In fact, our gospel reading this morning was one of those very parables. Most notably among all of the Gospels, Luke, in fact, talks about meals more than any other Gospel writer. It seems to be one of the main themes that he centers the Gospel around, this idea of a shared meal. In fact, out of all the scripture that Luke wrote, you know, he wrote the Gospel of Luke and Acts. Think about this. Approximately one-fifth of all the verses Luke writes are about meals, Anybody else love food? Hallelujah. You're thinking about it right now. You're thinking about lunch. Okay, all this talk about feasting. I'm getting hungry, Pastor Jacob. Let's go. Get on with it. Okay, well, let's do it. I'd like to look at a few passages from the Gospel of Luke. In fact, we're going to look at four banqueting stories this morning from the Gospel of Luke. But before we look at these stories, which I believe will bring us a message of hope, inclusion, forgiveness, conviction, and comfort, I want to set some context, give you some context for these four stories. I think it's important for us to, 
I think at least intriguing anyway, for us to understand what the Roman banqueting tradition looked like. Because it looks actually somewhat different than a family shared meal today or a night where we would go out with friends to a restaurant and share a meal. The Roman banquet um, was very intentional. It, it was set up to maintain a social order among social classes. It was, it was a tradition that was meant to help uphold the ideals and thought patterns that the Roman Empire wanted to impose on its people. In fact, there's this mosaic. I, I really love this. This is from the third century. Um, and it's really, really well preserved. And so I wanted to use this today to help us get a picture of what these dinners would look like that we're going to read about. This is a, a mosaic of a traditional Roman banquet. You'll see that the guests are not seated in chairs at a dinner table. They're lounging on couches. This is called the triclinium. It means three si a three-sided couch. So they would be like in a horseshoe or a, a three-sided square. And from one side of the triclinium to the other, the guests would be seated in order of their social status, a hierarchy, where they were in society among their friends. The host would be at the place of greatest honor. And the host would then uh, participate in, in leading two components of the meal, this supper. In fact, the first component was called supper. It was called the depnon. That's, I slaughtered that in Greek. I don't know Greek. I don't speak Greek. But the first component was, was called supper. Let's call supper. Can we do that? It's a Missouri word, supper. All right. And the second component would be called the symposium. All right. So during the supper portion, it was a full course meal. As we can see here, there's plenty of food. Uh, it wouldn't be like necessarily one table, maybe several round tables in the middle. There would be servants that would bring different courses of food out and drink. And it's interesting to note all of the scraps on the floor in this mosaic because it was the practice in these Roman banquets for you to simply eat your food and then throw your scraps on the floor, use bread to wipe your face and your fingers and then throw it on the ground for the animals to clean up. And I think this is cool because it reminds me of that moment of Jesus and the Canaanite woman where she says, well, don't even the dogs get the scraps from the master's table? This is all language centered around this Roman banquet. We see here the scraps on the floor. Not only that, but these suppers were held for all kinds of reasons. The rite of passage, like a bar mitzvah, big moments in life. They would have these meals to celebrate birthdays, just like we would do. They had these meals to celebrate weddings, the wedding feast we read about in the Gospel of Matthew this morning, funerals, uh, just for hospitality, if you were to have guests or friends over to your house. They also had these to celebrate the farewell to maybe a son or daughter that would be moving away. Uh, they also would just join for philosophical discourse and even religious practices as sacrificial meals would be held, they would all be held in this kind of Roman banquet format. The second half of this banquet would be called the symposium, but before they would move from supper to symposium, they would be called what's called a libation. This is interesting because the libation would be the host grabbing a glass of wine and making a toast. Does that remind you of anyone? After the meal, Jesus takes the cup 
you see. The host would take the cup and in Roman fashion would pour out some wine as a toast to the emperor Caesar and at a minimum the god Jupiter. Other Roman gods may be included in that toast. And then if you were a foreign people that were dominated by the Roman Empire, a part of the Roman Empire, you were allowed to, after toasting to the emperor and Jupiter, you could toast to your own gods. Rome didn't care that you had your own gods as long as you recognized their emperor and their gods. Of course, the people of Israel, many of them, this is a moment where they were a subversive people and they would resist the, the spirit of the age and the Roman Empire because they wouldn't toast to the emperor or to Jupiter, but some of them would. There was, it was split. Some of them had compromised and they would make peace with Rome and kind of go through the motions so that they could maintain their own social status among the Romans because it was beneficial for them. So after this libation, a toast to the gods, they would start the symposium where they would have special guests come in as entertainers, maybe to read poetry, sing a song. They would invite a teacher to come in and teach and then have philosophical discourse. This was a night to fellowship with those within your same social class. I do want to mention before we move on that the guests were important. Who was invited to each banquet was significant. They were always of the same social status as you, and they would be given assigned seats when you came in, and those assignments, like I mentioned earlier, told you where you stood in order of hierarchy among those that you dined with. In fact, these banquets were often in places where the public could see them. They weren't like we have closed, behind closed doors where nobody could see us having dinner. Uh, they would have these in temples or association meeting halls, kind of like unions have some meeting spaces. Or in, some, in, in the more elite portions of Rome, the rich would have these dining halls set up, but people from the streets could see what was going on. Of course, they wanted them to see because it was a place to show their elite status. It's kind of like bottle service at the club. You guys know about that? <laughs> One person laughed. Yes! <laughs> no, we don't have a lot of nightclubs here in St. Joe, Missouri. Uh, so bottle service is maybe not, not a good thing to uh, relate this to. How about this? The high school cafeteria. How about that? We all understand this. The high school cafeteria, that's the place where you're not in classes anymore. You all come into the common area. And now the social order is structured within the school and maintained by who you sit with at the lunch table, right? You're not assigned seats anymore like elementary and middle school. It's a free-for-all, and so you have this social hierarchy that begins to take place every day at the high school lunch tables. That's something maybe that would help us to relate to how the Roman culture was centered around these meals. I want to say that oftentimes you would invite guests who would then reciprocate they would owe you now an invitation to their banquet. And so it's a bit of a use, prid, uh, what, do they, what do they call that? Um, uh, prid quo, pro quo, right? Prid pro quo. Like you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. In other words, I'm going to invite you to this dinner so you can hang out with John and Sue and whoever. And then you're going to invite me to your dinner so that I can make connections within your social circle. And this is how you climb the ladder of social hierarchy in the Roman Empire. All right. I know I'm teaching some this morning. Some of you love this. Some of you are like dying a million deaths. It's okay. We'll get on to some stories here. Before we do, though, I just want to read a quote from Alan Street. I, there's a 
super geeky, wonderful book for those of you who love geeky books called Subversive Meals, an analysis of the Lord's Supper under Roman dominion during the first century. But it's wonderful. It's such a good book. And this is what Alan Street says. Just about everything connected to the dipnon, in other words, the supper, was meaningful. These Roman banquets. Who was invited, where they sat, what they ate. These arrangements were important because they reflected the order of Roman society and gave people a sense of where they fit into it. Can I just, spoiler alert, the Christian communion meal every week, especially in the first century, did the same thing, but it radically resisted the Roman social order, but it let people know where they belong and where they fit in, and it was a feast for all, a way to say you belong here. You fit in here. We'll get to that in a moment. These banquets were not few and far between, as we'll see. Now that you read your Bible, you'll see all the time these Roman banquets are happening throughout the gospel stories. They happened all the time. We're going to read a few stories of Jesus dining with a variety of people. I want to say this, that Jesus, we will see, uses this Roman banquet to start to establish his own social order, his own cultural values. In fact, he usurps, if you will, the Roman banquet and makes it a kingdom banquet for the kingdom of God, a banquet reflecting that vision painted in Isaiah 25 of a feast for all. Let's dive into four stories, starting in Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, verse 29. After this... Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, Levi rose and followed him. Here's verse 29. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. Do you see the picture from our mosaic now? Here's a bunch of tax collectors reclining on couches at table. And Jesus is there with them, invited to a banquet of tax collectors. And if you know the story, all of a sudden the Pharisees begin to ask Jesus' disciples, why would Jesus dine with tax collectors? Do you realize what he's doing to harm his reputation among Israelites right now? Tax collectors, they, they were loathed by Israel, the, the Jews, the nation of Israel, because they, they had compromised. They colluded with the empire. They were like mobsters just filling their own pockets, lining their own pockets, committing essentially treason and serving the occupying empire. Jesus responds to the comment made to his disciples. And he says, don't you know that it is not the well who need a physician? It's not healthy people who need a physician. It's the sick people who need a physician. I didn't come to call the righteous, the religious elite. I came to call sinners. I came for sinners and tax collectors. This morning, if you find yourself in the place of sinner, this is good news for you because Jesus has come for you. I raise my hand and say, every day I find in some way to screw things up. <laughs> I thank the Lord that Jesus came for me. Jesus came for you. Second story is a 
banquet with a Pharisee named Simon found in Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him, asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. You see, Jesus had been invited to Simon the Pharisee's house. And this woman of the city, a prostitute, from the street saw Jesus dining. So what does she do? She just invites herself in. He's, he's laying on a couch, his feet are behind him, and she just begins to weep and wash his feet with her tears, wiping them with her hair, anointing them with the ointment that she brought. Simon, the scripture says, he says to himself. In other words, he thinks, if Jesus was really a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is. Jesus knows the thoughts of Simon and says, Simon? He says, I have something to say to you. Simon says, teacher, say it. He says, there is a, a, a lender who has two debtors. One owes 50 and one owes 500 denarii. Neither one of them can pay their debt. So the lender wipes away both of their debt, forgives both the debt. He says, which of those debtors would love the money lender more after having their debt forgiven? Simon says, well, of course, the one who owed the most. Jesus says, you have judged rightly. Then scripture says, Jesus looked at the woman and spoke to Simon. He said, I entered your house, Simon, and you gave me no water to wash my feet, yet she has washed my feet with her tears. He said, Simon, I entered your house and you gave me no kiss to greet me, yet she has not stopped kissing my feet since she arrived. Simon, I entered your house and you gave me no ointment to anoint my head, and yet she has anointed my feet with her ointment. He says, look how much love she is pouring out. Why do you think she loves in such an extravagant way? Because she's been forgiven much. And in fact, he turns to the woman, looks at her and says, woman, once again, your sins are forgiven. The third story, it's beautiful. Luke chapter 11, another Pharisee invites Jesus to a banquet. It says, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not wash before dinner. Jesus didn't wash his hands as custom. I think Jesus did it on purpose. It was an illustrated sermon because as the Pharisee thinks to himself, he didn't wash his hands, Jesus speaks aloud and says, you Pharisees wash the outside of the cup, but the inside is filled with greed and wickedness. He begins to call out the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. He says, you're like unmarked tombs. Below the surface is just death. You keep everything looking good on the outside, all your religious practices, but on the inside, there's no justice for the poor and the marginalized. 
Jesus then goes on to say, you ought to have done both worship and justice, not neglecting one for the other. Banqueting story four, our last one, is found in Luke 14. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. Behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. Dropsy is an illness that causes your body to swell with fluids. This man comes off the streets, obviously. He's kind of an untouchable in those days. He enters the banqueting feast, an uninvited guest. This would happen from time to time in Roman culture. This was on the Sabbath day. That's noted in scripture. And Jesus looks at this man who has an illness and he doesn't heal him right away. He asks the question to the Pharisees and the lawyers that are there. He says, is it lawful under Jewish law that I heal this man on the Sabbath? Silence, no response. Jesus heals the man, sends him away. Then he asks this question, which of you having an ox or even a son who falls into a pit wouldn't rescue them on the Sabbath? Silence, they have no response. Of course they would. If their son fell into a pit on the Sabbath, they would rescue him. And this man in the pit of illness was a son of God. Of course Jesus healed him. But at that point, they knew that Jesus had embarrassed them. He was they were trying to trap him at this point. The tide were, was beginning to turn. And so he just went on and started teaching what the kingdom is all about. He, he was kind of being enigmatic about Sabbath law and healing and things like that. But then he just turns up the heat on them. And he says, when you come into feasts, you all, the people of God, are concerned about your status and where you sit at these banquets. And he tells them, when you come into a feast, instead of taking the place of honor, you should sit at the lowest place so that you're called up. And instead of being worried about climbing the ladder of, of social status like the Romans do, as the people of God, we are called to be a people of humility, of meekness. And then he goes on to teach when you have banquets, stop inviting people of your same social class like the rest of the Romans do. Stop inviting your friends and people who can benefit you. Instead, go out and invite the poor, the marginalized, those who have not, and call them up to where you are invite them in to a feast. And then he tells a parable of the wedding feast, just like we heard this morning, where he says that a king, being God himself, hosts a feast and invites all of his friends, which would have been the Pharisees in this part, the religious elite to come. And yet they have excuses on why they can't come. So he sends out his servants into the streets to bring in anyone who would say yes to his invitation. And this is the picture Jesus paints of the coming kingdom of God, that there would be a feast, a table set where the bread of life is offered, not to the elite, not to the ones who have it all together, not to the, the, the elite religious class, but to to sinners and tax collectors, to prostitutes and men who carry an illness that would make them untouchable. This is a picture of the coming kingdom of God and it is the very act of Jesus at the table throughout the gospels that reveal to us what kind of kingdom Jesus has established. And each and every week, we follow what the early church did. 
And we still gather here at this table to have a feast together. For the first 120 years, the church would gather actually every week at a table and have a full course meal. Then after the meal, they would raise the cup. And in remembrance of Jesus, they would receive Holy Communion. And then they would have a symposium with teaching and discussion, prophecy and healing. About 120 years into the tradition of the church, there becomes problems with the meal, the actual full course meal. You can read about that from the Apostle Paul. It gets kind of ugly, but we maintain this holy moment of worship to the one and true God. We maintain this moment in our worship every week, which it's not a full course meal, but can I say it is enough? It is enough for you that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the cup and he says, this is my blood shed for you. He took the bread, he broke it. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. What are we remembering? We're remembering that Jesus has called us to be a people set apart and different, resisting the spirit of the age. You know that we live in a world that is still divided. Did you, have you, have you, have you, have you seen that? Have you felt that? Do we recognize that we still have walls that divide us? May not be so much about social order. Maybe it's just political ideologies. Maybe war among us, grief, how we're to respond to global events continues to divide us. And yet every week we resist the spirit of the age, the spirit of division and accusation. And we come to this table, a feast for all, prepared by the one who sends us out and says, bring anyone and everyone who will come into my house that my house may be filled. So we're going to do that this morning. We're going to participate in this meal and there are no divisions. The sick will come and find healing. The sinner will come and find forgiveness. Maybe those of us who have held animosity in our hearts towards our brothers and sisters will find conviction at this table this morning and thus forgiveness for our sins. And maybe you've shown up this morning to church thinking, I don't really belong here. Can I say to you that you are welcome here? Can I give you the invitation to come and participate in the family supper this morning? To come and experience the salvation of God? To bring your brokenness, to bring your anxiety, to bring your shame, to bring your feeling of isolation, to bring your feeling of rejection, to bring your anger, to bring your pride, to bring whatever it may be that you carried with you this morning to bring it to this table and find healing, forgiveness, grace, and mercy. Amen. Would you stand on your feet with me? This morning, everyone is welcome at the table. My goodness, if we fenced the table at this point, it'd be rather hypocritical of us. In a moment, ushers will release you row by row and we're gonna come down front here and someone will have a basket with bread and they'll say to you, the body of Christ broken for you, take a piece of the bread. They'll have a cup and they'll say, the blood of Christ shed for you, take the bread, dip it in the cup and receive into your body the very salvation of God through this bread and this cup.
the very salvation of God present here to us today. We're going to confess our faith together in the Apostles' Creed. Then we will pray the prayer of confession and receive forgiveness for our sins. Then we will come and share this meal together today. Let's make this confession. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let's make this confession together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And God is gracious to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy. I say in the name of Jesus, your sins are forgiven. And this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. And it is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little, you who have been here often and you who have not been here long, you who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come, for it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. The body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. Amen.